So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and turn to Luke chapter 9 with me. Luke chapter 9, if you're using the Bible provided for you, you're going to find that on page 867. Luke chapter 9. Now I know we were here, or you were here last week, as I know that Joe took this chapter as his text. He did not tell me he was going to do that. And so as my dad says, I found out about it. I was a little afraid that he might be hoeing too close to my corn. <laughs> but he took another part of the chapter and how rich a chapter it is. But our text this morning goes right along with what we've been singing about the cross and a decision to follow Jesus, no turning back. No turning back. Let's follow along, if you would. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The word of the Lord. May God bless his word to our hearts today. And may he give me strength and ability to share it in a way that pleases him. You may be seated. It was a great uh, privilege for Susan and and me to participate in that conference that I've mentioned in Romania. Uh, and again, they do send your love. But there were about 140 participants that were there. And uh, what a great time we had. And we were able to uh, share, uh, as we said, the theme in his image and also then be able to share uh, the copies of the books, and uh, they were so, uh, so delighted to get those. Susan and I went around and gave everyone uh, their copy, <laughs> and uh, wow, you know, they kiss you on each cheek, you know, and when you've had that about 140 times, that you, you know you have been kissed. There's no doubt about it. Uh, so we enjoyed that time. I, I, I spoke, <laughs> this is the way it is, I spoke about 12 times. <laughs> in three and a half days. And, uh, you know, you can't complain about that because the average pastor there pastors three or four churches. So I'm not going to complain about speaking uh, several times in a few days. What great and wonderful servants of the Lord, privileged to be with him. But Susan and I also took a few days afterward uh, for some vacation uh, to enjoy our, uh, some time in Europe. Uh, we'd flown in through Munich, Germany, so that was the way we were coming back out. So 
Uh, we rented a car for four days and just started out. And uh, we were able to drive through the, the south of uh, Germany, of course, known as Bavaria, beautiful, and uh, Austria, and Switzerland. Uh, we had a tour of about 500 miles. I'm not sure how many kilometers that is, but uh, about 500 miles. And it was also uh, a miraculous thing because the car we, we got was all in German. <laughs> and it had directions. You know, it had the, the GPS in German. <laughs> and for about an hour, my wife pushed buttons, and finally she got English. So that was, that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It rained every day, uh, but that was no stopping us. Uh, there you see Susan just rocking that poncho, okay? And she was there in Zurich, the height of fashion with her Mickey Mouse poncho and uh, styling it all the way. Uh, we were just blessed by the beauty uh, of the area, but uh, most we, by some places we were able to visit that are associated with the Reformation. We've been talking about the Reformation for the last several months as this is the 500th anniversary uh, of the Reformation. So we were able to visit a few of those sites in that part of Europe. Uh, one that I was excited to be able to visit was this church. It's called the uh, Grossmünster, which means the Great Cathedral. This is in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, and this is where uh, the reformer, Huldrych Swingley, uh, was pastor and began to lead the Reformation efforts, and then he was followed by Dr. Bollinger. But it was amazing to be in that church where all of the objects of veneration had been taken down, all of the things off the altar having to do with mass were removed, and it was simply for the preaching of the Word of God and the worship of God. It was a, a great, great privilege to be there. And uh, this church you see is unique because it has two uh, bell towers. And I saw the sign that said that you could go up into one of them. There's a young man who took my money, but then he warned me that there was 186 steps. And I'm thinking, hey, buddy, why are you warning me? Look right here, you know? You can think, think I can't handle this? <laughs> barely handled it, <laughs> okay, <laughs> because you're going up a bell tower, and you're going up through concrete, and it, you're touching on each side as you go up, and uh, I made it uh, by the grace of the Lord to the top, uh, and enjoyed a beautiful view just like this. It was worth it uh, to go up and look out over Zurich, and you can see this view for yourself if you come on the Roman Reformation tour next spring. And pardon that shameless plug I'm putting right now, but you can come see that if you're able to make it to the top. But also, we saw some sites associated with the martyrs. And I was looking. I knew where some of these were, but they're not on your, interest, on your tourist maps. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the tourist maps don't mention these, these sites, really. And I, Susan and I went, walked up and down this river, the Zamat River, until I could find this plaque. And this plaque was by the river, and it is a plaque to Felix Manns, who in 1527, as the leader of the Anabaptist, uh, because uh, he taught that 
baptism should only take place after a person's salvation. He was uh, taken out from this spot into that river by boat. He was tied with his wrist to his knees and a rod put behind his back and weights around his legs. And he was singing to the Lord. And his wife, his mother, his brothers, and fellow believers on the shore shouting out, encouraging him to be strong in his faith and not surrender. And they tipped him out of the boat and drowned him there. And then most special sight, as we were driving from Zurich back to Munich for our flight back to the United States, uh, we had to go through the city of Constance, Germany. And uh, again, you don't find some places on the sites for tourists. But on the GPS, I looked up a street called Hussenstrasse. Hussenstrasse, which means Husses Street. And finally we found this, and it's just a narrow little street that goes through a parking lot of an apartment complex. But when I saw it down there, I knew exactly what it was, and here's what I saw. This huge, beautiful rock that was placed there many, many years ago. Someone who keeps the flowers all the time. But this is the spot where John Huss was burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ. You may remember that we had the series, the, the Fab Five of the Reformation. John Huss was the Bohemian priest, pastor, scholar. He, he was a leader in what is modern-day Czechoslovakia of the Reformation. And he was given safe passage to go to Constance. And there at Constance, was have, the council was trying to, huge the, to, to bring a resolution of the schism. There were three competing popes at that time. But they decided that a heretic did not have to be afforded safe conduct, even if it was promised to him. So he was arrested, imprisoned. He gave testimony of his faith. He was condemned as a heretic, and he was burned at the stake right out the old city wall, outside the old city wall at this spot in July of 1415. Now the presiding bishop of that council that condemned John Huss, his name's really not remembered at all, but he lived several more years and he was buried with great pomp and circumstance under the altar of the beautiful, beautiful cathedral in Erfurt, Germany, 92 years after he passed sentence on John Huss and had him burned, there was a young Roman Catholic monk who was ordained in the cathedral at Erfurt, and he placed himself face down, stretched out in the form of a cross before the altar of that cathedral and literally on top of the tomb of the man who had condemned 
John Huss. And the name of that young monk was Martin Luther. He had started reading the writings of the heretic John Huss. And it was just a few years when he would be the one who would nail the, uh, the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel and the resounding beginning of what we know as the Reformation. Now, friends, I, I share these with you just because I think it's good for us to, to share uh, experiences like this together. But I share it with you also because as I saw the sights of these martyrs, the thought came to me, who lost and who won? People would have said then, these people have lost. This fanatic Anabaptist Felix Mann has lost everything. This, this radical Bohemian John Huss has lost everything. But today, who would we say won? They did. They won everything. And friends, how this ties into our personal reformation and what I was thinking about when I was at those sites is this. When you really have a personal reformation going on in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, here's something you learn. You learn how to keep score. You learn how to keep score because the Lord does not keep score the way we keep score. And so with that in mind this morning, what I want us to think about is this. Winning and losing. What Jesus had to say about winning big by losing it all. Winning big by losing it all. Now, in our text that we just read a few minutes ago, our Lord Jesus reveals the scoreboard of the kingdom. Some of you don't, are not wanting to think about scoreboards this morning. <laughs> but he reveals the scoreboard of the kingdom, how winning and losing is determined in the kingdom of God. And he reveals the kingdom scoreboard so we can know what winning really looks like as a follower of Jesus Christ. He wants us to truly win. Now, the first thing I want you to notice as we look back at this text again this morning is there are some requirements that Jesus says are necessary for a person to win in the kingdom. These are requirements of anyone who truly wants to be a winner because without meeting these requirements, you will be a loser now and a loser for all eternity. Here are the personal requirements for following Christ. These requirements are not trivial. They're not a small thing. This is not trivial pursuit. This is not a game. These requirements that Jesus sets forth to be a winner in the kingdom are very serious requirements. Now notice what Jesus says are requirements to be a winner rather than a loser. 
The first requirement, he says, is this. There must be a denial of yourself. There must be a denial of yourself. Look at verse 23. We're going to look at it three times because all three of these requirements come from this one verse. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now notice, these are requirements for all. These are not requirements for a special group of Christians. These are not a, a set of requirements for people who are going to be used in ministry in extraordinary ways. These are requirements for anyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus. It's a requirement for all. It's a requirement for each. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, you must be willing to embrace these requirements. The essence of being a Christian, Jesus says, is first of all, self-denial. Self-denial. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. And that word deny there is a very strong word. It's the same word that was used of Peter when he denied the Lord three times. Same word. It's the same word that's used by John the Baptist when he denies that he is the Christ. He denies what people are saying about him, that he's the Messiah. He denies it as strongly as he can. That's the same word. I started this series, you might remember, a few weeks ago with John the Baptist as the example of a disciple, the, the proto-disciple, we could say. And what was the heart of his following after the Lord. When people said, John, everyone's leaving you and they're going after this rabbi from Nazareth, what was John's response? He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus Christ, listen carefully, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is not a tag-along to your dreams and aspirations. He is not someone that we tell to come join us on our vision for our life. Jesus, the Son of God, does not do that. It cannot be master me and master Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. Jesus' call for every Christian, everyone who would desire to be a Christian, who would come after him, follow him, is this. You must be willing to deny yourself. Requirement of denial of yourself. Here's the second requirement. Look at verse 23 again. 
Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, it's not just going to require denial of yourself. It's going to require something even greater. Death to yourself. Verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Friends, I want you to know, when Jesus used the word cross, there was a shudder went through the crowd. Because cross, the word cross was not used in polite conversation. No one ever talked in company about the cross. Especially this audience. This is an audience of Galileans. About 20 years before Jesus made this statement, there was a man by the name of Thutis who in Galilee decided to lead a rally, a rebellion against the Roman government. And he and his followers were crushed by the Roman authorities. The Romans burned down his hometown and then the Romans crucified nearly 2,500 people all over the roads of Galilee. Hung them on crosses, 2,500 of them. This happened in Jesus' lifetime, in Peter's lifetime, in all of his disciples' lifetime. Most of the people, adults, listening to him remembered this. And now here is Jesus saying, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross. Taking up the cross meant one thing. It meant embracing death. It would be like, take up your gallows. Take up your electric chair. Take up your gas chamber. That's what it would mean. Take up your cross. It meant death. What's he talking about? Death to self. You must be willing to die to self-control. You must be willing to die to ordaining your own life, being in control, all that has to die. The call of Jesus to be a disciple, friends, listen carefully, it is a call to come and die. It's not just a call to come, get your ticket to heaven. Live what you want to live, do what you want to do, and I'll see you when you get to glory. That's not the call of Jesus. If that's the gospel you have believed, you have believed a false gospel. And my heart shudders for you that you may be in church, but without Christ. Because the Lord Jesus did not call you just to get you to heaven. He called you to give you life from your death, life out of your sin, life out of your judgment, life from hell, but life of serving him and following him. This is not work salvation. But my friend, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's not waiting around for us to decide whether we're going to make him Lord. He is the Lord. And you don't take part of Jesus. 
You don't say, Jesus, I'll take part of you. I'll take the Savior part, but I won't take the Lord part. You don't come to Christ that way. Jesus is called Lord 10 times more in the New Testament than he's called Savior. He is the Lord. And he says, if anyone wants to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to be willing to die to self and follow me. My friends, it's very clear. Jesus was very clear. Here's what he was saying. No cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. Now, Jesus is lovingly honest. He's lovingly honest. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. And he says, count the cost. Count the cost. But come, follow me. Serious requirements. He says, denial of yourself. Death to yourself. And now look at verse 23 again. There's a third requirement. There must be a determination for yourself. You make a determination for yourself. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. This is determination. Let him take up. It's a decision. Let him take it up daily. Let, let her determine she will follow me. Friends, it's not an easy thing to be a follower of Jesus. It, it's an absolute gift of God's grace, and it's a wonderful thing. But to faithfully follow Jesus Christ is not a, an easy thing. It requires determination. It requires daily determination. You just can't come to church on Sunday and get what you're going to need for the rest of the week. It requires daily knowing that your identity is a follower of Jesus and the decision you have to make this day is I will follow Jesus regardless of the cost. It requires a daily determined decision that we've just sung. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Friends, that's a wonderful song, isn't it? But I'll tell you what I found. It's easier to sing than it is to live. You found that? We have to decide. My friends, I pray that the, I pray the Lord will help us stop, help us stop telling him our plans. That he'll help us stop telling him our plans and he will help us start listening to his plan. If you want to make the Lord laugh, tell him your plans. If you want to make the Lord smile, then tell him to lead. Lead me, Lord.
That brings a smile to Jesus' face. These are hard things that the Lord is saying. These are the hard sayings of Jesus. But why is he doing this? What are, what are the reasons? What, what's going on in Jesus' mind that he would say such things as this? Well, he tells us. He tells us here the principal reasons for following him. He says these are the principal reasons. What are the principal reasons that would call us to be willing to deny ourselves, die to ourselves, and make a determination about ourselves to follow Jesus? Why would the Lord tell us that's necessary? Because he has these reasons. Notice them. The first reason is this. Look at verse 24. He says the first reason is this. Because your life is investable. Your life is investable. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now it's interesting here, the Lord is using financial terms. Gain and loss. He's talking about what you do with your treasure. But what is your greatest of all treasures, friend? Your greatest of all treasures is the treasure of your life. Your life. Jesus affirms with a, a strange but perfectly understandable statement. It, it's strange, but it's perfectly understandable how investable your life is. He says in verse 24, if you would save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now the Lord is not speaking here of martyrdom. That is the issue in some people's lives as they follow Christ. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's using a play on words. Again, remember, he's using an investing imagery. When he says saving here, you might want to write in your Bible, maybe make a note, at least a mental note. When he says save, he means hoard. He that would hoard his life, going to hold on to it, going to grasp it, going to control it. It's mine. He that would hoard his life, he's going to lose it. But he that loses his life, and that word losing here has the idea of spending lavishly. Again, it's a financial image. He that hoards his life is going to lose it. But he that shares his life lavishly, he is the one Who's going to save it? Thursday night, I had a strange dream. I'm not sure why. It might have been a jet lag dream. I don't know. But we'd been up 23 hours straight, and then you just fall into bed, but your mind is just whirling. You've been there, many of you. But I had the strangest dream. In my dream, I was quoting a verse of scripture. 
In my dream, and I can't remember exactly what it was, I was quoting a verse of scripture. Truly, truly, I say to you, except a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And I woke up. I thought, well, wow. I was, I'm quoting from John 12. I went back to sleep. I dreamed the dream again. I'm quoting scripture again, the same scripture. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, it dies. It abides alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And the image in my mind, as I recall, was the image of a farmer. And this farmer is standing in his barn. And this farmer is just running his hands through all the grain that he has in that barn. He's just loving it. He's smelling it. And in my mind, he's, he's just holding it up against his chest. He's just, he's just um, so into this incredible barn filled with grain. But then the image of my dream was outside this man's barn were fields completely barren. Barren. This man, this farmer, he was hoarding his grain. But in hoarding the grain, he was missing the harvest to multiply and multiply and multiply it over and over again. In that dream, I couldn't see his face. Who is that foolish farmer? I wondered, oh Lord, might it be me? Might it be me? Who is the foolish farmer? The foolish farmer is any person hoarding his life or her life. That's foolish. It's, it's the person who's releasing his life, losing control to the Savior, losing self-control and embracing sovereign control. That person's life is multiplying beyond his or her imagination. But when we wrap our arms around our life and it's our dreams, our plans, it's going to happen our way. And we go to church and we think we can pray a prayer and get God to stamp his approval on that. We are losing it. We're losing our life. We're losing everything. Second reason Jesus shares is not only is your life investable, it's because your soul is invaluable. Your soul is invaluable. Look at verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or as the older translations say, loses, forfeits his soul. What does it profit a man if he gains 
the whole world and loses his soul, Jesus asked. Can you imagine the value of a soul? Can you imagine the value of your soul? While we were in Zurich last week, we walked down one area, the banking area. Some of the largest banks in the world headquartered there in Zurich. You've heard of those Swiss bank accounts. And I was trying to think as I was walking down that street that within a few hundred feet beside me, above me, or in the vaults below me, how many billions and billions and billions of dollars from around the world were literally all around me. Untold billions. But then the thought came to me. And I thank God it did. What's the value of the billions and billions of these riches compared to one soul? I tell you, I stood there in that banking center and I felt like a very rich man. I felt like a very rich man for the surpassing treasure of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that my name, by God's grace, is written in the Lamb's book of life. What value can you put on that? What does it profit you, my friend? You gain all your goals, you accomplish all your plans, and you become wealthy, and you leave a chunk to your family. You are known, you are accomplished, but you lose your soul forever. Consider the value of your soul. What does it profit you? If you gain, and then you put, fill in the blank. What does it profit you if you gain and put the, anything in the blank, but lose your own soul? Jesus said, I'm saying this to you because your life is investable, your soul is invaluable. And then he says something again strong in verse 25. Your judgment is inescapable. Verse 25. Verse 26, rather, I should say. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? My friend, what a day is coming, right? The Lord Jesus, this same Jesus, is coming back in power and great glory. And the holy angels are coming with him. What a day is coming. The heavens will open and the Lord will return. But what a day is coming for each and every one of us here this morning. Each and every one of us 
will have that day, the day that we will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. And friend, I want you to know, each day we are preparing for that day. And I want to challenge you, friends, listen carefully. Church, listen. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. The world's not ashamed of sin. Shall we be ashamed of the Savior of the world who saved our souls? Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Ask yourself, am I a follower? Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a follower of the Lamb? Shall I fear to own his cause? Shall I blush to speak his name? God forbid that for anyone here, the Lord would be ashamed that day to own you and that you would be one to whom he would say, depart from me. I never knew you. You were ashamed to own me in life. Now I will not own you. Following Christ, brothers and sisters, is not easily easy. It is costly, but you know what? Would you agree? It's worth it. Amen? He's worth it. And He's worth it because of the promised results that Jesus gave. And I just close with this and we're done. The promised results of following Christ. Why would anybody follow these kinds of requirements? Why would anybody join Jesus' team? Why? Well, Jesus made a unique statement. He said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, that promise was literally fulfilled. You look at the next few verses. Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. He took them to the mount, and there he was transfigured before them. They saw the kingdom. They saw the king in his glory. Jesus going through that metamorphosis where his glory as the eternal God was radiating out of that human body. They experienced that. This promise was literally fulfilled. But friend, I want you to notice, Jesus connected that statement with what he just said. He connected it with what he just said about following him, being his disciple. And I am convinced that he is saying that this can be personally fulfilled in our lives. Not that we're going to go up to a mountain and Jesus will be transfigured. But he is saying we will see things that we could never see unless we are following him. You remember two disciples of John the Baptist. Listen carefully. They came to Jesus when Jesus was introduced. One's Andrew. One doesn't name himself, but he's John. And they said, Master, where are you staying? And here's Jesus' first words 
to his first two disciples. Do you remember what they are? Come and what? See. Come and see. Jesus' invitation to his first disciples is the invitation to all of his disciples. Come and see. Come follow me. See the kingdom of God. See what I am doing. See what I'm about. See me at work. See this world through my eyes. See this world through my value system. Come follow me and you will see the kingdom of God. Friends, I have a question before, for you. Jesus said then, I say to some of you that are here, you will not die till you see the kingdom of God. And he was talking literally about Peter, James, and John. But he's speaking about following him and seeing the king and the kingdom. And here's the question I have for you and for me. Listen carefully. Before you die, will you see the kingdom? After you die, if you're a Christian, you're going to see the kingdom in all of its glory. But I want to ask you, before you die, will you follow Jesus? Will you deny yourself, die to yourself, and with determination follow Jesus? Will you invest your life and give your invaluable soul to Christ so that you can see the kingdom while you yet live? Heavenly Father, bless your word to our hearts. And I pray now, right now, I pray for people whose hope may very well be a false hope. They have prayed a prayer. They have said some words. But yet they have not surrendered. They have not yielded their life. They have not been willing to take up their cross. Lord, I pray in your grace, show them that false hope. Show them that refuge of lies. Show them that their hope, their only hope is in Jesus Christ and falling at his feet and surrendering to him as Lord and Master. Oh God, I pray this very moment that people will bow the knee to Jesus. And oh God, I pray for us as your people, open our blind eyes, deal with our misplaced priorities. May we consider everything this world has to offer as refuge for the surpassing privilege of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh God, Help us to value what is priceless and eternal and to release what we call ours so that we may receive the life that you've given us in Christ. Pry open our fists, O oh Lord. Pry them open so that we can grasp you and take hold of that for which you took hold of us and press for the upward call in Christ Jesus our Lord.
No turning back.